0: Welcome to Jason, the Movie Knots. I'm Jason Sachs. And I'm Keith Silva. And we are talking about two classic movie musicals, Sing in the Rain from 1952 and All That Jazz from 1979. They are kind of the alpha and omega of movie musicals. You can't ask for two movies that are more different from each other, but also kind of more great in what they are. So great suggestion for us to talk about both of these. Yeah. This was my first time seeing Singing in the Rain. I know you're a big fan of it. This yep. is your first time seeing all that jazz. I'm right. a big fan of it. Let's start with Singing in the Rain because it, okay. it, it has elements in it that I think kind of feed into all that jazz.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: First of all, tell me why you love the movie so much.
1: Well, I'm not a musicals guy. I have no background in musicals. I didn't listen to cast albums growing up. Um, I think my interest in musicals has always sort of been there. Like I've known about them, but this idea of people doing something and then breaking into song, right? That's kind of like, you have to get over that, you know, just like you have to get over, you know, can a man fly? Can, you know, somebody get punched through a wall if you're going to read comics? There's a suspension of disbelief that goes with it. And so in my movie group, uh, the Osterman weekend is the name of our, is the name of our club. We would do themes. And one theme we did a blind spot for a lot of us was musicals. And I picked singing in the rain out of sort of, I could have been anything it could have been West side story. It could have been any of the classic, you know, musicals, but I picked singing in the rain and I fell in love with it. Like I had not fallen in love with a movie uh, in a very long time. It was just everything that, you hear about it. Of course I knew the song and all that stuff, but when you watch it, it is another kind of experience. It's like, Oh my God, everything I've heard about this is true. I've been talking with a lot of friends lately based on conversations from this podcast about expectations and, you know, things falling below your expectations, singing in the rain, you can pile as much as you want on it and it exceeds your expectations. And for me, I know that you've got Gene Kelly in it, probably the finest dancer, you know, after Fred Astaire or they're they're equal, whatever the point, that's not the point. But for me, the 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 eye-opening thing in this is Donald O'Connor. When I saw the Make Him Laugh sequence, my jaw hit the floor. I could not believe what this guy was doing. And, you know, it was it was all brand new to me. It was seeing it with new eyes for the first time. And so it's become like one of the top movies. I've probably, I probably saw it for the first time. Oh, probably four or five years ago. And I've probably watched it every year since it just, I just absolutely love it. I'm late to the game, uh, but I absolutely love it. And rewatching it this time, it was just, you know, you can't not stop watching this movie. Uh, I know a lot of guys feel that way about Goodfellas or the Shawshank Redemption or, you know, some other Scorsese, other, many other Scorsese movies. But, you know, uh, I was w- watching it this morning, singing in the rain, and the kids were coming in and out of the room and they all stop and they slow down. And they're like, what is that? Like, it grabs your attention. Just, it is just unbelievable. So
0: it, it, it's, a, it's a funny analogy because I, I actually just got done talking about The Departed with our good friend, Raphael <laughs> Gaetan, earlier oh, today, who's yeah. also a giant movie fan. Uh, so I watched The Departed uh, in combination with watching Singing in the Rain recently. last <laughs> movie I hadn't seen. It's a very funny analogy you make there, Keith.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I
0: think I could turn off The Departed. I couldn't turn off Singing in the Rain. I had this amazing reaction to this film, which was partway through. It actually felt a little sad because I would never have the experience of watching Singing in the Rain for the first time again. And I can't think of any other movie I felt that way about. But there's this joy and happiness and brightness. The color in this film is astonishing. The energy is amazing. But more than that, I can't think of a movie that has more moments of people smiling (laughs) than this movie. Like, this is like the... What a, the poster says, what a glorious feeling, right? And this whole movie is about glorious feelings.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: It's just a pure joy. And it, it's just so delightful because of that. Uh, the plot kind of doesn't matter, but the plot is enough that it's, it's a great excuse to string everything along. But at the same time, the plot is just fun enough that it even adds to it. Like you haven't seen many musicals and seeing in the rain just immediately made me a fan of the genre because of the pure joy inherent in this film.
1: I think one of the other things about this movie that again, those those, you know, gauging your expectations, it, it, it's very it's a meta movie, right? It's a musical about making a musical. It's mm-hmm. it's about movies. And one of my favorite genres is the movies about movies genre movies about movies genre um so this like fits into that and you see you know i always love to watch the act of creation that sounds a little uh, lurid but um i you know people making stuff and i think that's one of the things in singing in the rain that really comes out is they're they're not just putting on a show in that sort of classic mickey rooney sort of way they're actually building something they have to they they have to creatively solve a problem. You know, they have this, this, this kind of the transition from silent pictures to talkies. And then they're going to use this kind of goofy movie to do that with. And then they have to work around it and find all these solutions. It's one of the things about the movie that, you know, I wouldn't have expected when I first, you know, decided to put Singing in the Rain on. I was ready for rain. I was ready for singing. I was not necessarily ready for, you know, meta movie commentary.
0: And it's just enough plot to, to get you interested and give everything a perfect little forward momentum. It's funny in that you know they've got the whole subplot about the character whose voice is so squeaky and it's terrible to listen to, right? right, right. But they don't like over underline that either. And at the same time, they, they just bring in Debbie Reynolds as this perfect singer who just adds so much to it. So there's just like a little bit of plot, a little bit of character, but. More than that, it's just all the joy that's attached to all the creation. I love your analogy of, of it being all about creation because it, it's the creation, but it also feels so effortless to these people.
1: It's light, uh, very light. Oh,
0: you're right about O'Connor. He just has this pleasure in every moment in the in the film you know, he it all feels so light. And he, along with Gene Kelly, just feel like they're so perfectly aligned with each other, Mm -hmm. so perfectly in sync. And it's this kind of thing where you uh, very rarely in our lives are we perfectly in sync with another person that we're doing something with. And we see that. And I saw a little documentary behind the screens. This movie was co directed by Gene Kelly and Stanley Donnan. And I guess the two of them had a very similar relationship to the Kelly and O'Connor characters.
1: Right. So this
0: has got this really cute little element also of autobiography to it.
1: I think one of the other things about Singing in the Rain that I came away from is, you know, I don't, what I, I like to see people performing at their best. That's, I know that's not a revelation, but, you know, I don't know anything about gymnastics but every year when you know every four years when the olympics comes on you watch the gymnastics competitions just to see what these people do with their bodies and i think that's one of the things about singing in the rain is it is the epitome of athleticism and 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 that idea that i mean it can be anything whether you're a baseball fan a sports fan or whatever you see an athlete do something with their body that is otherworldly you know, you can't but not admire it, at least for me, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, I don't like soccer. But when I see Cristiano Ronaldo do something amazing, I'm like, Oh, my God, look at that human being doing, you know, whatever this is helps these Portuguese, but that's okay. Um, (laughs) And I think singing in the rain, the, the whole idea there is that it looks effortless. That likeness that you're talking about, Jason is I think, really key to this, to this movie is it looks like they're not even trying but you know these routines have been rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed and then rehearsed again, 10 more times.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I love in a film where it looks in a weird way like it's improvised, but everything is just so perfectly choreographed. The good morning scene, for example, yeah. You know they're up overnight creating this idea for how they're gonna modify this movie that didn't work yeah. and turn it into a musical. And they look at each other and it's this very casual conversation. Oh, good job tonight, good job tonight. Oh, no, actually, it's morning. Oh, good morning, good morning. And all of a sudden, the song evolves from it and becomes yeah. a beautiful, big story, big song. And it just, like, sweeps you along. And the athleticism of the dancing and the energy of the characters and the way they're relating to each other and the pure joy they're feeling throughout those scenes just pulls you along. And even, like, there's a, the little bit of the plot, too, where... The good morning scene is also where the Gene Kelly fa- character falls in love with the Debbie Reynolds characters, which then triggers the singing in the rain scene. Right. You know, they, they, right. there's a lot of talk in, in like movie criticism about what's the moment when you felt these two characters were falling in love, it's mm-hmm. in that scene. Yeah, right.
1: right, yep, yeah. And, and the other thing about the good morning sequence is, you know, and I think this is the other thing I love about this movie is there's always artifice, like, it, like they're never not performing. There's a performative aspect to singing in the rain in which, you know, at one point the camera, when they move from the kitchen to the living room or they move from the, the table where they're eating to the living room, I can't remember which way it goes, but it passes. You know, it's like the walls don't exist. The, the, mm-hmm. the camera just goes through and you see the divider for the, you know, what the wall is. And I just think that that's a wonderful, incredible thing that's just performative. They know they're performing, but you never really get caught up in that. You're just seeing them, as if it was a Broadway musical, and you were seeing them acting on a stage, and I just think, again, that that, that suspension of disbelief—you don't even pay attention to it. It just goes right by you because of what you're seeing on the screen because it's so amazing.
0: Yeah, it's weird because it's stagey, but it's not stagey yeah, at the same time. Exactly,
1: exactly, exactly. Thank you. Perfect. Perfect. Because
0: we almost feel like things are happening in the proscenium. Mm-hmm. The the whole long sequence at the end with Sid Cherie, for example, yeah, like looks like it's happening on a stage. The, all the amazing dancers, the gorgeous, beautiful, colorful costumes. Yeah, all the characters doing all their different things. It, it looks both unreal and real, I and mean, the unreality is what gives it more reality to it.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep.
0: And that's that's the beauty of this film too. Is it's the unreal made real. In the Mm -hmm. same way that we love our science fiction films, where they're making the unreal feel real, but they're doing this in such a, the paradox is they're doing it such a minimalistic way. Right. There's barely any stage dressing. You compare this to something like West Side Story, where they were on the streets of New York as they were filming that, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. the characters are dancing around in the streets and it gets part of its power from the characters dancing over the garbage cans and stuff in Brooklyn or wherever. This movie gets so much of its power from being completely artificial.
1: Right. And that's even remarked in, in the film, there's that wonderful scene that then sets up the Sid Charisse. I know it's called the Broadway ballet, but it's like dance fantasia to me when she's got that train behind her, that giant scarf behind her later on. But Gene Kelly walks in and he's, he's, you know, he's dressing Debbie Reynolds down about her being a serious actor and him being a movie actor or whatever. And he's like, oh, a little light, you know, how about mm-hmm. some s- some fog that rolls in from the mountains? And they're showing you how to make the sausage and you're still gobsmacked by watching them make the sausage. And it's unbelievable. Just unbelievable. I think
0: that scene especially is even more magical now than it was in yeah. 1951 when they filmed it. Because mm-hmm. it's part of what makes this movie such a joy now is it's a flashback to older Hollywood and the way yeah. films were made. There's that beautiful sequence too where, they're walking through the soundstage and there's different movies all being created as they walk past, like four different soundstage. There's like a, I'm trying to, I struggle to remember. There's one that's like a um, old West scene. There's another- There's
1: Train Robbery. There's there's uh, one that's like
0: an old Coliseum Roman thing, right? Yep, yep, yep. Uh, And they're right next to each other. And it's like, this is like the the magical Hollywood of everyone (laughs) being on the lot.
1: Right, right. Uh, One of the things that I also- I don't know where I heard it, but this movie really cued me into it, and I and I've I've I'll hold on to it. You know, uh, you can have it back. You can pry it from my cold dead hands. <laughs> um, sort of thing is how dance is filmed, and I think in both these movies, you know, so much. You know, whether you want to say it's MTV or editing or just the changes in the the uh, uh, you know styles uh, over the years but one of the big things in this movie is everything is a medium or a long shot you Mm -hmm. see the entire person's body and in a lot of these movies where there are dance sequences you never see that because the people can't dance they're not dancers so you have to cut so you have to have insert shots of feet or legs or whatever and that's the thing about singing in the rain is everything's wide you Mm -hmm. see their whole bodies almost the entire time Yes, there are medium shots, you may only see them from the waist up, but it's all of a piece. It's never a sense that they had to edit this because somebody made a mistake or they couldn't, you know, do this particular step, as is so much in the case when they bring, you know, non-dancers in to do a musical or something like that. I'm thinking of that stupid ABBA movie or whatever, where, you know, none of those people are dancers, but they look like. You know, they just make it look like an MTV uh, uh, hip hop music video. And all of a sudden, you know, 50 cuts later, you know, you make uh, you make somebody able to be, you know, Gene Kelly when they're, you know, Keith Silva.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, the point is to show Kelly and O'Connor in sync with each other. And we sit there amazed that like in the uh, what's the what's the song in the where they're Getting tutored on the language. Oh, Moses supposes. Moses supposes, and the perfect synchronization they have oh, with yeah. each other—they're they're absolutely echoing each other in this beautiful way. Uh, it's just so much more delightful because you can see them head to toe, yep. moving together. The arms are moving left and right, and they're perfectly in sync with each other. They're smiling and they're enjoying the scene together. It, it, I was talking about color before the. The hmm. only other movie that I think uses color in the same way is Moulin Rouge.
1: Okay. Especially that would be for, one of those bad dance movies. <laughs> well, that's you get to because
0: I, I love Moulin Rouge too. It's, it's a it's a, it's a uh, real weakness for me because I just think it's, it's a crazy movie. Uh, it's, a, it's a movie I tuned in like 15 minutes into it when they were doing The Hills Are Alive with The Sound of Music. Okay. Yep. And I just kind of, my jaw dropped. I'm like, what the hell am i watching but lerman films it in the opposite way that kelly films this movie right right? boz lerman's films moulin rouge and all these quick shots so you get just glimpses of things and the color splashes and then moves to another color and moves to another thing we never get this continuity i'm not necessarily saying one is right or wrong because no no I, i think that movie is fun and part of what makes it fun is the extremely short attention span right but of what makes this movie so wonderful is it's got the long attention span but it's also you don't need the long attention span because it's not people talking it's this amazing movement the entire time right and what you're taught what you were just talking about is that the filmmakers trust the dancers to keep the audience involved in what they're watching
1: right
0: and by doing that we also get this kind of nice just uh trust i guess
1: Mm. I think you're also seeing someone who, uh, you know, there was only one Gene Kelly, there was only one Donald O'Connor. So when you have that kind of talent, you don't have to cut, they are trained that way. They are trained to be able to use their whole bodies to pull off these sequences there. You know, Gene Kelly was described as the triple threat. He could act, he could sing and he could dance. Mm -hmm. And that was what you had to do back in the day to even get your foot in the door. He just happens to be someone who is better than anyone else at it. I do want to bring up one thing, Jason, that you said earlier, which is always interesting to me, watching it this time, the narrative of this story, yeah, there's the whole you know uh, silent pictures going to talkies and the sort of uh, leading lady there, Lena Lamont, uh, sort of undermining everything and she's trying to you know, uh, work the studio uh, to make sure that she stays on top and all this. Uh, in a very lurid kind of way but I checked I stopped the movie just before the Broadway ballet before he goes off to he says oh what are you going to do to tie this all together he goes well it's going to work something like this and then the camera moves to the screen and you get this whole sequence and that's with the Sid, Sid Charisse character that is like 15 minutes 10 minutes at least of this like It goes totally away from the movie it's Mm -hmm. not necessarily tied into anything you're watching and it is the most biggest amazing like it's like all the stops have been pulled and then the last 15 minutes of the movie is wrapping up this narrative it goes away and then it comes back to sort of tie up this kind of like you say paper thin kind of very light touch sort of narrative um and the 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 the, the energy of that and the way that's put together it's not avant-garde by any means but it is it really reminds me of you know when we get a little bit later to talk about all that jazz it's this break in the movie where we go into this other world mm-hmm. like literally we go into this world of the screen he you know Gene Kelly moves his hand over motions to the screen and it it's unbelievable the scene with you know this the Sid Charisse thing but at the start when he's they're on the, the uh the conveyor belts and he's walking and all the people are going by. And as you mentioned, oh, the colors, uh, you know, and, yeah. and, and just all choreographed all, you know, single takes, you know, the camera just moves. You don't have a lot of cuts. He mm-hmm. moves from one place to another. Yeah. He walks in a door and then walks out into something else, but it is just unbelievable how this thing is like stuck <laughs> at the, at the, you know, 75% of the movie is over and we go into a whole nother world. I just, I was really taken by that this time.
0: It's just something, it it just disappears for a minute, but we're so swept away by it. And it didn't feel like it was an intrusion. It felt so generous.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. You know,
0: I think the word I keep, uh, I started out by talking about happiness, but the word I kind of keep coming back to in my head is generosity in this movie. There's Mm. just so much that they give us. The scenes always are big. You know, the movie starts at... uh, at a movie premiere and there's hundreds of people there and there are literally hundreds of people there. Yeah. Yeah. It feels big. It feels like there's a lot going on there. The Broadway scene, as you were talking about, there's hundred, there's 150 people maybe dancing there. Right. right. And again, it feels big and they're all dressed differently and they're all doing something slightly different from each other, but it feels like they're giving us this world. They're not right. taking away at all. We don't feel like they're intruding on, on a story because yeah. it's just, it, there's a generosity to it that's they, they want us they're so committed to us being entertained they're going to give us everything that they can to make us be entertained
1: i also think that this movie does it continues to always top itself it's like oh you thought that uh you know make them laugh was good we're going to top that with Moses Supposes. Oh, you think Good Morning was good? We're going to top that with Singing in the Rain, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, you thought Singing in the Rain was good? Wait till you see the Broadway ballet. It just mm-hmm. goes over and over and just keeps topping itself. And you're just like, I can't believe this is doing this. It's just unbelievable that it just keeps going and going. And it gets better and better, but it doesn't lessen the other things. It just keeps raising the stakes as it goes and, you know, hits it out of the park every time.
0: It just amazes, yeah, it it, it amazes me how much they give us and how much joy there is in it.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's really, it's one of those things that, you know, if you are not a fan of musicals, if you don't, you know, people breaking into song unless they're animated does not appeal to you singing in the rain, you know, if for no other reason, that's the lowest hanging fruit of it, but also just seeing these people at the top of their game.
0: Have you seen An American in Paris or any of the other classic? No, I haven't
1: seen any of the other Gene Kellys. That's something that, uh, you know, there are other blind spots. Thanks for point- pointing that out, Sax. So, all uh, my feelings okay. uh, all right. as a human being. I appreciate that. It's good to have somebody like you <laughs> around me. Um, no, so I have it. Um, I have watched a bunch of Donald O'Connor uh, clips on YouTube and some of the other dances he does. And they're all they're all amazing. You know, a, a, a search for Donald O'Connor nets nets you an awful lot of stuff. I watched a clip earlier today of he and Gene Kelly just doing a dance in a chair. They just sit in chairs and they tap, wow. they tap dance. They do all the routines just in, a, in while they're sitting in chairs, because they're like, oh, what, what, you know, those guys, Sinatra and Como, they get away with, you know, they don't have to do anything. They just have to sit, they can just sit and sing. And it's like, well, we could do that too. And they do this, you know, eight minute routine of tap dancing through different things, they do singing in the rain. They do a few other things. It's all amazing,
0: and again, it looks so effortless. Yeah. just looks like they're not trying at all. I mean, yeah. I know they spent all day, for example, on the good morning scene. Yeah. There's a I, I watched the thing where Debbie Reynolds, she, where she says, "My feet were bleeding by the end." <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, that's the other thing about this movie that you know, again, it's uh, extra textural as I've heard it called. But you know, the the making of singing in the rain doesn't sound like a joyful place. It sounds like Gene Kelly was a horrible taskmaster and he just kept berating De- uh, Debbie Reynolds and Donald O'Connor was afraid of him. And he would use, he would yell at Reynolds through O'Connor and just, you know, yeah. it doesn't sound like a fun thing. You know, uh, my daughter pointed out like, Oh, didn't he, didn't he shoot uh Sing in the rain with 108 fever? I'm like, yeah, I guess so. I mean, that's sort of the story <laughs> that goes around, but you know, again, none of that appears on the screen whatever was going on in the background none of it is there none of it really matters because of what they get and you know i am a believer in you know okay look and if the end the product was what it was how you got there doesn't really matter
0: that's the subtext of the movie isn't it yeah make them laugh
1: oh yeah yeah
0: doesn't matter what's going on in your life it's all about what what the audience gets out of it
1: entertainment you're entertaining them yep
0: somehow this movie wasn't even nominated for best picture yeah, <laughs> yeah. in fact in 1953 I the think dog was le- what's
1: that it, it failed it wasn't a popular it wasn't the su- success that we know it today when it was first released it was mm-hmm. just uh just another musical just another movie on the you know out there
0: that just caught people's imagination is it's yeah. the, the history of film was so fascinating that way. Yeah. How was this a lost film when now it's one of the easily one of the top hundred movies I've seen.
1: Oh, and one of the, you know, AFI, all the lists, it's always top, top 10 uh, in, in accomplishments and things like that. Yeah. When, I mean, when it came out, it was just another MGM musical, um, just another Gene Kelly picture.
0: I've also been watching a lot of late sixties, early seventies movies. That's my sweet spot. Yeah, and so I'm used to you know gritty or realistic or in some ways you know uh, a lot more real movies Mm -hmm. and it was such a shock to the system to watch something that's something so purely cinematic
1: Mm. yes this is
0: this is a pure film yep yep and in the golden age of Hollywood uh, way of saying it and it works so well as a pure film from a golden age of Hollywood sort of way Uh, which is probably a good transition to talk about. Maybe one of the most nineteen seventies <laughs> musicals ever made. Uh, you can't ask for two movies that are a better contrast for each other.
1: I I agree with you, but I want to talk and about that, that. I want to talk about I want to talk about how these movies are maybe more connected than we know. But anyhow, go ahead. Um, talk so, about all that jazz.
0: <laughs> so all that jazz. So my history with all that jazz is. Um, you said you just came to it. I actually saw it uh, when I was in high school. We had a subscription to HBO and this movie was on for a few months and I watched it over and over again.
1: Mm.
0: And then hadn't watched it for many years and a few months ago bought the Criterion Mm Blu-ray hoping Mm -hmm. I, I would enjoy it. And I didn't just enjoy it. I was overwhelmed by this movie. This, all that jazz is in similar ways to in in similar ways to the movie we were just discussing, it is just a completely unique film. Yes. There's nothing else like it. And that's true on multiple levels. On a thematic level, on a character level, on a storytelling level, and on a musical richness level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was overwhelmed by how good this film was re-watching it and even this now watching it again to prep for this again i just felt there was so much it's this crazy mix of autobiographical self-castration
1: <laughs> wow <okay. laughs>
0: and pure joy at performing mm-hmm. filled with astonishing performances. Yeah. Uh, sing in the Rain is just pure joy. This is pure joy also, but in a very, very different way. And I'm curious as someone who was new to this movie, he always had it on his list to get to, what your first impressions were?
1: Well, now that you've outed me as not having Singing in the Rain, <laughs> I, I, not, I haven't seen uh, all that jazz uh, till the ripe old age of uh, 47 or whatever I am. Anyone who knows me, knows me well, knows that my favorite movie, if pressed, I will tell you is Jaws. There's a lot of reasons why that is, but Roy Scheider has always been my guy. And I, you know, went back to all the Roy Scheider movies, you know, French Connection, Sorcerer, The Seven Ups. Uh, if you've never seen The Seven Ups, put that on your list. It's a great uh, New York gritty cop movie from I think, uh, I think the early seventies. So Roy Scheider's always been, you know, Chief Brody's always been my guy, and I never saw all that jazz, even though I know, you know, it's it's up there, and I just never got to it. I've had the Criterion Blu-ray. My friend Mark Kearney will say, "Didn't you?" I thought you owned this, uh, and I said, "No, no, I had to borrow it from him." And uh, he's like, "Didn't you have it in your hand once?" I'm like, "Yeah, and I put it back." So you know, it's a Roy Scheider movie, and it's you know, okay, look, Cloudy and Chief Brody, uh, and who he plays in Sorcerer. You know Those guys are, are, are great, but uh, Joe Gideon might be his best. I might have to admit that, that this character and this performance is it's, it's right next to Chief Brody in my mind for uh, Roy, <laughs> Scheider, Roy Scheider weirdos like me. But no, I was just, you know, so the thing about this movie and I, I watched a couple of uh, supplements afterwards was just in 1979, it must have looked otherworldly. But to us nowadays, it's very, you know, oh, we get it when, when narratives get fractured. And there's a there's a dream sequence or a fantasy sequence that's just, you know, slapped together right next to the story that's going on. Um, and it's just one of those things that we take for granted nowadays. But in the, you know, late 70s or whatever, that was all fairly new. Just and, and you know, yes, singing in the rain and uh, all that jazz are their musicals. And they are totally different, but there's a lot of connections there. Bob Fosse and Stan, was Stanley Donnan's choreographer after uh, you know for a lot of his movies throughout his career. So Fosse has a connection back to, to Singing in the Rain, you know, because Stanley Donnan was the director. And so I see that same you know what's it you know it's Showtime that whole thing that that Joe Gideon is always repeats to himself over and over and over again, that repetition like, like a dance move is something that, that goes back to singing in the rain and entertaining, putting on a show, making them laugh. Joe Gideon is nothing uh, if not about entertainment and making them laugh or you know entertaining them. So, so this movie really, those two ideas really tied together this movie. I mean, again, it was a perfect two movies to talk about together totally different, but um, still there's the DNA is is in both of them.
0: He wants to make everybody happy who doesn't know him. Everyone who knows him, him, he will use and abuse and treat as second. Mm -hmm. They're not important Mm -hmm. to him. And that's one of the great paradoxes of this character, is that he is just in his heart an ass (laughs) who cares about making people happy. But only to a certain extent. He treats his ex-wife terrible. He treats his, he cheats on his ex, his wife. Treats on his girlfriend. He even treats on his his girlfriend who he has as a backup for his girlfriend, right? (laughs) Uh, He he, uh, ignores his daughter as much as he can. Uh, He lies to himself. It's just so... Uh, Fosse just is so cruel to himself, or maybe just so honest to himself. Uh, he is self-lacerating, maybe that's a better way to use, better word to use, uh, which I thought was like just really honest and yeah. painful to watch in some ways, but also so joyful. It's this crazy paradox where the music and the scenes and uh, the storytelling and the energy are so Delightful and the character is just so impossible to like.
1: I don't know that he's impossible to like. I he's loathsome. I get that. The things that he does are not, you know, uh good actions, so to speak. You know, they're not, you know, he's not he's hurting a lot of people, you know, that sort of get sucked into his sphere. He's he's very, you know, vain and very greedy in in, in many ways. But again. It's very human it's mm-hmm. that idea of of warts and all kind of show that's up there and and the other thing that's about this is you know again it's it's very show business it's that that darker side of show business it's, it's too cliche perhaps for this movie because this movie's a lot smarter than just sort of ooh the yeah. dark side of hollywood kind of thing um but joe gideon yeah he's not a great guy by any stretch but he's also like He's not trying to be what he's trying to do is he's trying to put on a show. He's trying to to, to bring this art to you know the, the a higher level which you know you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. So
0: though no, I appreciate that he's kind of an anti-hero. Yes. And perfect. and uh, he is he, he's representing himself as a man who is struggling with, with doing the best, and constantly giving into his own worst impulses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even just smoking in the library, in the library, <laughs> even just smoking in the hospital after having his heart attack, <laughs> having his party and not realizing what's going to happen to him. He generally fe- seems to feel guilty about the way he treats his daughter. Um, I don't know if he feels bad about the way he treated his wife or not. That actress, by the way, who plays his wife, we should talk about her because she is magnificent.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think it shows Shider's depth of character that he is able to to give us some sympathy for Joe Gideon, even while we're disliking him intensely for his incredible self-centeredness and lack of foresight about his own life. Uh, He doesn't mean to be cruel, but he is a cruel man.
1: Right. And I think that's the self-loathing that you're seeing on screen is he knows he knows he's an asshole. He knows he's all these bad characteristics, but that's who he is. And therefore, that's all he can show. He can be cruel to these people, but he's going to show you how cruel he is. I mean, you know, it's just absolutely, you know, totally naked, totally out there. You know, it's not Bob Fosse, but everybody knows it's Bob Fosse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he must have been a hard person to know in life. It doesn't look like, you know, uh, one of the things that's very interesting about this movie, even though it has apparently a a accurate scene of a chest spreader for open heart surgery and a real open heart surgery that they filmed for the movie, this movie has so much you know, it's, again, that artifice thing, Jason, you were talking about with Singing in the Rain. It's all artifice, but it's none. I mean, you're really seeing things on the very most basic human level possible, but all under the, under the umbrella of, of performance, of, of putting on a show, of, of showing you what's happening.
0: Um, I was talking about Singing in the Rain being full of smiling people. There's not very many honest smiles and all that jazz. <laughs> But yeah, it's this amazing paradox too, because it's razzle dazzle. It's spectacular. It's gorgeous to watch. There's scenes in this movie that like we were talking about earlier are unlike any other scenes in the movie. It starts out with this magnificent sequence of the dancers trying out for the Broadway show. And I could watch that scene over and over just because of the, brilliance of so the way it's put together. He throws 200 people up on the stage and they're all dancing to try and get a part in Kavasi's in, in show. And we can see all the different personalities. Uh, having watched it a few times now, I see the different personalities of the different dancers coming through mm-hmm. in it. The way that they're all in sync and off of sync with each other. There's a cute little bit with the one dancer who's completely helpless yeah, yeah. and the, the uh, ex-wife and daughter are giggling at him. But the way he puts that scene together and just builds on it, builds on it, is gorgeous. You know, we see him also interacting with all the people who are trying out, right? He's saying yes and no to the the various people. And he does make this instantaneous connection with them. He's also flirting with the women and saying, hey, this (laughs) is your real phone number, Right, and all that stuff too. Uh, And you see he's not being dispassionate about it because he picks the girl he wants to sleep with as part of this whole thing. Mm -hmm. So there's all these levels to it, but from a both a pure cinematic standpoint and from a character building standpoint it's like a perfect film beginning you're dragged into this because there's so much going on and so interesting and it brings you into a world that you've never seen before right film anyway i can't think of another movie that shows a scene like that
1: uh maybe there's a few i haven't seen but right i think there's i think one of the things that you're getting at here and it's done a little movie i was I was reminded of a couple of movies of this, which I'll get into in a second, but one of the things that's amazing about the opening cattle call scene in all that jazz is they're dancing, but the music that's playing is George Benson's on Broadway. That's not the music that the dancers Mm -hmm. are hearing in the piece. You know, they were not filmed with that song sort of in the background. They're not synced to that at all. Um, I didn't know that. I I learned that from a little bit of research. So, um, but anyhow, there's that scene again. Everything is wide, and you're seeing again that act of creation that we talked about with singing in the rain, Jason. You're literally watching the choreographer create his um, create his company, create his cast right in front of you as he goes through, and he sees all these different people. And you know, it's easy. You know, again, everything's a wide shot. You're seeing bodies move through space, just like bodies doing things that really look effortless, but are after years and years of practice, you know, again. Um, So yeah, that opening sequence is, you know, again, you could watch that forever uh, and and never get bored.
0: Yeah, you were, you called out the creation when you were talking about singing in the rain and the creation scenes in this movie are also just sensational. There's a major plot element of him not really liking the play that he's been called on to create. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They do there's an interesting scene where they're doing the table reading and there's they tell if they read this there's you know all the cats are sitting around the table they start reading it you hear the first line and you see everyone laughing yeah. and then it goes into his head it seems yep. and everyone's laughing you see people laughing uproariously as they're doing the table read and he's there kind of lost in his thoughts and you could read his face so well there shiner's performance is so great because you see his dissatisfaction, he's like, no, we can do better. We can do better on this. And he's kind of dislocated from the scene. He's in his own little world as he's as, as it's silent there. And that set of the, the way that they portray that the, the ideas germinating in his head, which then feeds into you know scenes l- later on where he says, Okay, we're gonna try this 117th different attempt at this one scene.
1: Right. 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 And
0: then it evolves into a couple other things and eventually becomes this really weird erotica uh, sequence. It's amazing. Keep your kids yes. out of the room when that, when that comes up. <laughs> <out>. But it, <laughs> yeah. again, ama- yeah, amazing sequence. Right. And you see him, you see this genius artist at work right. going from this thing that he's just not satisfied with, but everyone else is he maybe a little bit of self-aggrandizement here right i see i see flaws where other people see genius and then he turns those flaws into something that's crazy unique uh, fascinating right and there's this there's the parallel plot line of him trying to hone the the uh, the comedy routine from the movie lenny essentially mm-hmm. yep. of the comedian doing dr kubler ross's six state or five stages of mourning right um, and him trying to perfect that little nugget of a scene and make it absolutely perfect. and He's tortured by the fact he can't get it right. He's coming back to it again and again because he knows there's that perfect thing in there. And finally he gets it right and the guy who's screaming about the budget is like, "God damn it, he got it right." <laughs> so this movie gives us just what you were talking about loving in in singing in the rain, which is we see the art of creation and we see him coming out the other side and doing something that seems transcendent
1: yeah it's really one of those things where I was watching it and he's trying to work through that scene in the beginning with the song and, and you know about airline or whatever it is and he's like oh it's not right yet it's not right yet and I'm like what's what's going on is it like not the right steps like come on buddy you know you're a choreographer choreography or you uh-huh. know, whatever and then you know, it cuts away to that and it comes back and he brings in the producer and the director and the backers and everything to see what he's created. And it is, it's nothing like you've was hinted at in those earlier scenes. And it it's this thing that's, again, it's its that Broadway ballet moment of this is going in a totally different direction. You have not gone, it is going into, you know, just not avant-garde, but this this just, your masterpiece that was, was, was nothing, you know, it was just messing around in the sandbox and all of a sudden you've just built a mansion out of it. And it's just bad analogy, but um, there it is. And nonetheless, I think it also gets back to how, 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 how making something is a process. Uh, For me, all that jazz is always about the process in in full. The movie is about the process of how Joe Gideon became Joe Gideon. That's why you have all those flashback scenes and the scenes with the the angel or devil or whatever Jessica Lange is supposed to be in this movie. Um, But you see the process of how something evolves. And that moment where you wanted to speak about his uh, ex-wife, when he goes into the room with her there and she's, she's, she's working out with the piano player, a song or a routine or whatever. And he's like, I just can't get this, I can't get this. And through talking with her and their relationship it comes out that it, you know, he works, you know, that little bit of that break and that conversation with her spurs him to this next thing that continues the process. And and I found that to be that scene itself, the acting and, and everything like that. But also just like you don't show that scene. You don't need that scene to know how his ideas developed, unless you want to show how his ideas developed. And obviously. Uh, they do but you wanted to talk about his wife so I set well, you up.
0: Uh, that's a great segue because that scene also shows it, it's such a it, it, it's such an illuminating scene because she's she's dancing and she's dancing for his play she wants to play a character who's much younger than she is let's yeah, play yeah. a character who's 24 and they have a daughter who's probably 12 or something yeah um, so she's at least in her mid 30s so she's trying mm. to play she's got this vanity to her so we see her as weak but she's also dancing. Spectacularly,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: and he's treating her dancing as the most normal thing in the world, as if he's seen her dance for 20 years, yeah, right? They were married, and this is what they did, but also you see this chemistry between them because who spurs him to this idea that's the breakthrough? It's his ex wife, yeah, there's a spark there, there's a connection there, there is a love there, Mm -hmm. and. That's just done in such a nice, subtle way that feels so comfortable. That's just like, a, a it's him also recognizing essentially that this, this is the woman he loves on some level he can never love anybody else. Right. And I know in, in real life, this is the Gwen Verdon character that he had on and off relationships mm-hmm. with over the years. Right. Uh, but leaving that aside, this is a character who feels really fleshed out in the few moments we see her. The woman's name is Leland Palmer. I guess she's mainly a stage actress because she only has two or three credits on IMDb. Mm-hmm. But her face is so expressive. Yeah, She's got those big eyes that just seem to be saying so much all the time. Mm. And I just find her to be such a compelling character, especially when she's with a daughter, Michelle Elizabeth Goldie. Yep. Foldy, yep. Her name. Her and there's movie. such a connection between them. Uh, to me the saddest scene in the movie is a scene where the mother and daughter are performing for joe that's, that's the girlfriend mother... in, the, oh, that's in the apartment right. yeah, yeah that's the girlfriend that's the yep. girlfriend and that's a yeah and that's the life he could have had with her yeah the mm. girlfriend also that's Anne ranking who you said yep. just passed away which is terrible mm. to hear playing katie who's yes. just manipulated and abused and hurt by him throughout the whole movie and just treated like crap and yet she stays by him because she recognizes, I think, his genius.
1: Yeah, Katie is an interesting character because she is obviously the other woman and she probably gets more abuse uh, put upon her than anyone else. Um, she's not in the show. When he goes into the hospital, there's a scene where she's calling the hospital. I'm not his immediate family, she says, yeah. and she's dressed you know, for a performance. So it's like, oh, why wouldn't he cast his you know, the woman he's sleeping with, his girlfriend, this woman who loves him, who he trusts with his daughter, why doesn't he cast her in the show? So that was one of the questions I sort of had. I was like, oh, that's a very complicated relationship. Joe Gideon is a complicated man, to say the least. But it's also one of those things where these people are just perfect. And I think one of the things that you were saying, Jason, is I don't like this word because it gets overused nowadays. But Everything that happens in this movie feels very authentic, feels very real, very lived in. And I just want to make one other thing: that scene with the uh, uh, Katie and Michelle when they put on that performance. I was like, "Look, I, 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 I'm not. Uh, I was in some school plays in middle school, but I'm not show people. But this is what people involved in that life, I assume, do right: is they perform for one another. Mm-hmm. They put on little shows. They sing. They dance. They They have a talent, they have a gift. And they, you know, here's his daughter who's a very accomplished, you know, dancer in in her own. I mean, like you said, that girl's probably 12, 13 years old and she's keeping up with the adults and doing it really, really well. At least from my eyes, I don't know what uh, Gene Kelly or Donald O'Connor would (laughs) have thought of her performance. But nonetheless, it's one of those things that it all feels real. And I think the other thing that this movie where this movie diverts from all that jazz, even though it, where all that jazz diverts from singing in the rain, where they're both about entertainment and putting on a show and entertaining people, there's a lurid side to all that jazz that uh, singing in the rain never, never goes to. And I think that, you know, I, talking with you, I always think about comics. And I think that, you know, when I think about these Marvel movies, uh, and I think about all where comics are now, not comics, but at least superheroes, that genre that you know, has, has developed in the 20th century, you know, from, from action comics all through now, there's a luridness that has always been a part of comics that is really sanitized now, that isn't really there anymore. Um, and it's something that, that, that sort of luridness of the show business you know, like you said, you go to all these places and all that jazz, they're all back rooms. They're all, you know, dingy, dirty spots. They're not, they're not the places of, of the performance. They're certainly not the colors of singing in the rain. They're, they're dirty black spaces where the work gets done, mm-hmm. you know, uh, mm-hmm. dark places where, where the work gets done, you know, that's sitting in front of your computer, pounding away in that, in that dark room somewhere or whatever it is. And that's one of the things that all that jazz, that's like an extra spice in this movie is that sort of that little bit of luridness, that little bit of, you know, the, 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 the laugh, the, the crying clown or something like that. I don't really know how to, yeah. how to put it into words, but, but there is that luridness that is like in comics um, that all that jazz again is showing you everything. It's not just showing you the razzle dazzle. These are people working. Yes. Yes. Right. We
0: never see the movie. the movie starts with a naked stage set. Yep. We never see that set dressed. Nope. And we only see these dancers in training rooms.
1: Right. Never with, in costumes.
0: Yeah. Never in costumes. They're always in their clothes. They're standard dancer clothes or regular clothes. Um, and they're all dancing on basic wooden floors against mirrors. Right? These are people working and they're sweating, they're hot, they're working hard. You know, they're, they're taking Joe's criticism as they go. Right. And here's part of what I love about the movie is that the only time it becomes a true razzle dazzle feature is when we really go inside Joe's head to the astonishing last 15 minutes, which is the, the uh, death scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Bye-bye life. Yeah. Yeah. I have a lot of thoughts on that, and I'm not sure I can articulate them yet. So I'll stop and say, <laughs> uh, what what did you make of that from the since this is the first time you've seen this film?
1: I have seen that sequence before. So when they got to that sequence with Ben Vereen, I was like, oh, okay, that's where this part fits in. And it, it took me a it took me a second to sort of catch up with the movie and sort of what was happening, because also the way it shot is like. It starts with those rotating mannequin heads, and you're like, what is this? What's going on? And then it's sort of like again, it reminds me of the end of eight and a half, which this movie gets compared to a lot again about, you know, the, the mind of the director in eight and a half, this and the mind of the choreographer, and seeing their whole life, you know, almost flash before them. The people in the stands are all people that are have been in the movie, you've seen, and, and some of these other things. And so the sequence, I was really wowed by uh, simply because it is it is boffo. It is just, you know, it goes, again, it builds and it builds and it builds. And when you think it can't go any further, it goes one step further and, and just really pushes the boundaries of what could happen. And, you know, again, it's there's a lot of repetition in it, that idea of repeating things. And I think that's one of the things that Joe Gideon does is, Constantly repeats his mistakes. And I'm not saying it's saying there's repetitions in the shots or it's boring or anything like that, or they run out of ideas. It's more like the repetition is to remind you of the work that it takes to get to this place, uh, the, the work in a dance routine, and also like the lyrics. They keep singing the same, you know, uh, looks like I'm gonna die, looks like I'm gonna die. It's like, you know, they're, they're telling you exactly what's gonna happen. For ten minutes until it really happens, which is which is astonishing because again, like singing in the rain, you don't even notice it. You you just you don't even notice like they're mm-hmm. singing the same lyrics again and again and again, but just in different ways and with more and more feeling. That's the other thing in this movie. Before I forget, Jason, if you haven't seen it yet, it's another Criterion movie. Uh, it's another great. It's well, maybe the greatest dance movie ever made is The Red Shoes, and that's. Um, from your friends Powell and Pressburger, right. who did uh, Stairway to Heaven, or uh, I can't remember what the other term was. Matter of that, Life and a Death. Matter of Life and Death, thank you. So Red Shoes is one you have to put on your list, because that's another movie all about dance, all about performance, but also an incredible dance sequence in it, and sweat. And when I saw the sweat on the dancers' faces and all that jazz, I was immediately reminded of the Red <laughs> Shoes, and being reminded of seeing... You know the 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 physical exertion, you know the sweat that it takes to create this 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 art.
0: Before we go to more about the conclusion, I want to briefly talk about the editing.
1: Oh, God, Alan You're bringing right, you're bringing me to my place that's closest to my heart. No, yeah, be,
0: yeah because you you, t- you talked about it briefly, and I want to make sure we actually do mm-hmm. discuss this yeah, yeah. because this movie feels contemporary. And I think the reason it feels contemporary, it feels new, it feels modern, is because Heim's edits are very smart and very quick. And the movie has this trust in its own imagination that you don't necessarily see in other movies from that time period. Certainly not in movies earlier than this. There's... You can call it an MTV jump, it's not really though because you see full bodies, you see movement, you see, as you were saying earlier, you see all of everybody doing things here. But at the same time, all throughout the movie, you're seeing like a quick glimpse of, of Joe on the respirator and sure. the, the short, quick, beautifully composed scenes of him with a symbol of death, uh, Jessica Lange. And these just this, this quick little sequences that pull in other elements. And as you're talking about the repetition, to me, it feels more like music, where you're going to get mm-hmm. notes or melodies or uh, elements that repeat mm-hmm. each other. And because you, you don't feel like these repetitions are problems or conflicts, you feel like they're, they're notes that are continually recurring. It's a chorus, it's part of the song. It's not, in, in a way, it's not that different from you know, the, the themes in any other, you pick your favorite movie, you know, Darth Vader's theme or whatever, because he comes on, you hear dum, bum, 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 or yep. whatever, right? And uh, Heinz edits really are magnificent in that they pull all the elements forward and together in a way that really fit this movie. And what makes this so interesting is that that also reflects on the edits that Joe is making to Marty, the, the, not the, the excuse me, not to Marty, to the movie Lenny. Lenny. Yeah, uh, because we're we're made aware of these edits in a way that you never are in any other movie right. and yet these edits still are so like powerful and intriguing
1: it mm. was great
0: so much alive and alive in it
1: there's a great piece that i watched by matt zoller sites about it was called Fossy time and it was all about the editing of all that jazz and lenny and Star 60, I think is the other movie that comes out after this. And the idea of what he was saying was that Heim sort of learned all this. I'm sorry, it's... what's his last name? Is it?
0: His Alan... name is Ellen Heim.
1: Heim, I had, I had it right. Like, it's sort of like- the Rhymes with time. <laughs> Rise with time, yeah. Perfect for, uh, to talk about editing. And again, you know, editing, editing in film is a time machine. It allows you to stretch time. It allows you to constrict time. And it really you know, allows you to play with how events unfold and how things unfold you know, in real time, but also in this sort of movie time, in this dream time almost. And I think that's the other thing about this movie that makes it feel so modern is because clearly Haim was picking up things in the, in the Zoller site's essay. He talks about how Hiroshima Monomore was this movie that he worked on at the time? And it uses those insert, insert shots uh, to sort of tie things together. And that was something that wasn't usually done. It's not in a straightforward narrative and it connects feelings, it connects an image. You know, someone's hand cuts to uh, the hand of a sleeping man, cuts to the hand of a dying man in the same position, in the same way. And this does the same thing it's almost like your, what Fosse is going through, sorry, what Joe Gideon is going through in the movie. It's what you think about your mind skips all over the place as you're going through it and cuts back to the past and then goes forward again, always into the present and then back and forth and, you know, non sequiturs and things like that. And you get that sense that you are living a life. You are living, you're seeing someone's mind working. Um, Also, you're able to because it's film and it can be manipulated you're moving around parts of their life and bringing the past into the present and then you know skipping ahead you know almost into the future in some ways so yeah the editing in this movie is fantastic and you know 100% that you know it's clear that this movie influenced you know MTV i mean this this is yeah this is music video editing before we called it MTV he-
0: same year that Heim worked on All That Jazz, he also edited the movie of Hair, which ah. I haven't seen in many years, but he certainly has a connection to musicals. Interestingly enough, he also edited one of our favorite movies, Network.
1: Oh, okay. Wow. Was, and he edited Lenny, yeah. which seems yeah. appropriate. He's in the movie. He's, he's the editor in All That Jazz, the guy with the mustache. That's so. time. <laughs> yeah uh,
0: so I want to make sure we we call that out because the editing is yeah astonishing. And I believe he won an Academy Award for the editing in this movie
1: as As it shows, you know, the thing that the editing shows us, you know it, you're not supposed to notice the editing. And this editing isn't showy in a way, but it 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 helps tell the story. It's a tool that is used just like color is used in singing in the rain, just like, You know, performance is used in both these movies to tell the story. It's another tool you can use to tell the story, not just to say A follows B follows C. You know, it's-
0: You're making a great point because this movie really takes, uses so many different elements to tell its story, including surrealism, including time jumps, including the use of music as a connecting element, including the use of, you know, visual elements. Uh, It's got surrealism in it. It, it just works on so many levels that the compression and decompression of time, interior monologue. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's,
1: also got, so,
0: it's so cinematic.
1: It's also got this narrative again, about telling a story about putting on a show. There's that sequence of all the producers and the accountants mm-hmm. and they're going through and they're like, how much money is this going to make? And you're like, why are we watching the scene? What does the scene have to do with this guy's life? And it doesn't really, but it shows you again, how the sausage is made without sort of bothering and, you know, it, without making a big deal of it. It's just like, oh, you actually would make money on this if it never opens. And yeah. you're just like, ah, you know, <laughs> amazing.
0: Yeah, so it works on so many levels. I mean, it's razzle dazzle about razzle dazzle, but it's also completely <laughs> down to earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's got this almost meta narrative to it.
1: Yeah, which absolutely. Now-
0: which now perfectly brings us to the ending because how else can a man like Joe Gideon go out than having the greatest musical number in the history of cinema uh, inside his own head. Right. Unproduced, but perfect. Uh, You know, this is the man who made Cabaret uh, and all his other great films up there on stage showing his, his inner life and projecting his death. It's 10 minutes of, Yeah, razzle dazzle, but also this tying together, also this honesty, this pain, but this beauty, the showmanship, but also this almost ambivalence about the showmanship aspect of his life. There's so much going on and none of it's actually said outright.
1: Yeah, except it is because he keeps saying, I'm going to die. I'm gonna I die. think I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. Right, right. He thinks he's going to die. They keep going over that again and telling you what is going to happen. And I want to ask you about the last shot in the movie, because I, I am curious about what your take on that is. Uh, but again, you're being told the whole time that he's going to, there's no, there's no comeback here. This is it. He's going out and he's going out with a bang in, in the most amazing way possible totally choreographed, totally around him. You know, you want to talk about, you know, self-aggrandizement or, or <laughs> selfishness or whatever, you know, this guy's staging his, his own, his final, you know, goodbyes and his final death scene so much so that he gets to go around and shake everyone's hand in the uh-huh. before he goes on stage. And again, this brings me back to eight and a half because in eight and a half at the end of the movie, it's a celebration. All his friends and all the people you've seen in the movie come together and they come around and they dance. It ends with a, with them all dancing together uh, in a circle. They're, they're holding hands, running in a circle. And, and it's a celebration of life. In this movie, it's a celebration of death. It yeah. is a death haunted movie. It's that mm-hmm. you are going to die here. You, you made a lot of bad choices during your life. You smoked every living second of your life. And it cost you. And you have to pay for your... Uh, you have to pay for your, you know, not mistakes, but your choices. And you pay with your life. And that's, that's a pretty hard thing to swallow. But again, it goes down pretty smooth in all that jazz.
0: Right. Yeah, it has to go down smooth in all, in all that jazz because this is his inner life. This is how he perceives himself. This is his ultimate lie to himself.
1: Mm. Mm. Vonnegut
0: mm. said smoking is a form of slow suicide. <laughs> yeah <laughs> it, it's impossible that he couldn't en- you, you see him coughing up his lungs in a few scenes right constantly constantly
1: and, smoking and coughing
0: yep. and this is one of his many 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 delusions that he has about his life not delusions self self i don't know what the word is he thinks that the, he thinks that making these mistakes isn't going to affect him and over and over again they affect him and ultimately they affect him in the worst possible way like right. causing his own death denial i guess is the best word for it
1: yeah it's denial and but it's denial uh and it's deference because he's constantly putting those off as he continues to always push forward push forward to that next thing to that that drive that's the other thing you know as you mentioned this movie being about working and being about you know getting the work done doing the work and you know i think that's one thing about joe gideon that you can see is how driven he is how he literally runs from one rehearsal back to the edit studio, to this movie, you know, back again and again, he never really stops. And, you know, he's the, he's the architect of his own downfall. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he, he destroys himself. He's self-destructive in the most spectacular, you know, it's showtime kind of way.
0: Yeah. Right. In the end, he's true to himself. Yeah. In the end, he is himself. You know, he's a classic anti-hero, I guess, in that way.
1: Uh, yeah yeah. yeah. has his own, you know he, he's the master of his own uh, demise simply okay. by but, being himself.
0: <laughs> so then the I think that my final question about this movie is, what does it say about Fosse as a person he made this movie about himself? I've, I can't think of any other film. maybe there's biography or other biographies, but I can't think of any other film that's so laceratingly self-honest laceratingly truthful about yourself
1: well i think this is the other thing when we were talking when i was talking before about gene kelly being this triple threat there aren't too many people that could do this right that, that can sing dance direct Nobody. and tell the story very few bob Fosse would be one of those few people but it's really hard unless you know i know i can't even think of a good answer like tom hanks i guess someone who could direct their own life in such a way that it, you know is is the microscope is really you know
0: but tom hanks isn't tight. that but tom hanks isn't bob Fosse. tom hanks is correct so I mean,
1: we don't know i don't know tom hanks i don't think he's self-destructive like bob fossey but you know you need that triple threat you need someone who can direct who can be a storyteller in that way
0: i mean i suppose it could be someone like a Lindsay lohan or something but- <laughs> But uh, it's is, good. She, it's good. is she talented enough to make a movie like this? I don't <laughs> mean be cruel about right. that. But you, right. you, you right. get what I'm getting at.
1: I know. Um, I totally understand what you mean.
0: I just think that this, this movie just stands alone.
1: Right. Right. Uh, eight and a half catches it, but it's a much different look. Even though there's a lot of self-loathing in Eight and a Half, there's a much more joyfulness at the end. Um, and a celebration at the end where the celebration here is always what it's always been about which is Bob Fosse and I think that's the other thing is is this movie makes very clear when you come into his orbit you know he's a black hole I mean he, he just pulls everything in mm-hmm. and you become part of uh, the Fosse circus to your own your own buyer beware kind of
0: there's it's thrilling though he's oh, charismatic yeah. it's a great ride. It's exciting right? yeah he does amazing things there's no one like him no. Nope. He's nope. accomplished. Uh, I suppose it's like being in the inner circle of anyone who's a powerful man.
1: Right. Or creative. Or, or, or creative. Yeah. So what, do you, what do you make of the last shot? What do you make of the body bag shot?
0: That's it. You're done with self-denial. You're done. Really, I read the whole ending as him just going through his death throes in the hospital. Okay. And I take it completely literally. He just basically this is him that this the uh scene the the goodbye my life goodbye is mm-hmm. the equivalent of his life flashing before his eyes before he yeah dies. Yeah, yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah and then so-
0: and then at the very end him dying and then getting zipped in the body bag in a way it's like at the end of Amadeus when Mozart is just thrown in the the pauper's grave and you know treated like anybody else you may you may think you can conquer anything else but you know, the one thing that's undefeated is time.
1: Right, right. Father time. Undefeated.
0: Father time will never be defeated.
1: Right. I do, I, I guess my question of why. So it's the last shot in the movie. You know, it's clear that Joe Gideon has gone on to some other realm or some other place. He's died. He's 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 you know, shuffled off this mortal coil. He's an ex-parrot. And I guess we get to this, <laughs> we get to this moment that I kind of felt like, oh, we need to see him zipped into a body bag to know he died. Okay, it, it, I just don't know. I, I, it's fine. I'm, it's a quibble. Okay. Uh,
0: so what's what's your concern with that?
1: My concern with it is you didn't need it. My concern with it is I would have rather gone out on the the grandiose exit of the conveyor belt to Jessica Lang, and we all sort of know what happens. Cut to black. That's it. But then you cut to this shot of like, no, he's really dead. It's not like, you know, there's not some sort of, you know, come back here. We're not leaving any doors open. Your Amadeus thing is perfect. And I don't need to go on any further than just to say, you know, you, you got it, Sax. That, that's it. It's to show that he's a guy like anyone else. And even though you get this grand exit, you know, you still get zipped up and, you know, chucked in the morgue.
0: I like your point, though. I like your point that it's it's kind of underlining it. It's put. It, you're saying it's kind of putting too fine a bow on it. I yeah. mentioned. I, I mentioned. I just saw The Departed, which I know <laughs> you did too. Tiny yep. spoiler for a movie that came out fifteen years ago. <laughs> it, it's like people complaining about the rat in front of the Capitol <laughs> right, at the end right. of The Departed. Yeah, yeah. Where you know, Scorsese, you've delivered a great movie, but you shouldn't have put a bow on it.
1: Mark Wahlberg could have backed out of that room and. That could have been it, and you could have left it. Uh, you didn't need the rat running across uh, the mm-hmm. railing. I kind of like the rat, <laughs> 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 only because I like the joke of seeing the Massachusetts State Capitol being a, a son of the Bay State, and seeing a, a you know a rat running by the. You know, just it's again, perhaps it puts too fine a point on it. The body bag, the rat, whatever the case may be, but it's that reminder again that you know the finality to it. it 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 perhaps it's too much but it's 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 right against that line of too much and 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 you could have left it you don't need the body bag shot you know what happened you don't need the rat at the end of the party it, but it's just that little extra bit now, i wonder i wonder if scorsese i've never heard him comment about that but i wonder if it was all along those same lines of, of thinking about that one little extra step i'm sure there was some movie he saw in the 40s on million dollar movie <laughs> had the same shot that he just wanted to 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 comment on so but anyhow Scorsese I'm talking about but uh but yeah it, it, again it, it I like the idea of the Amadeus connection is is the right one so I'll leave it at that
0: what a great pair of movies I'm really glad yeah. we watched these together
1: yeah same here I was really glad to finally catch up with all that jazz and feel like my Roy Scheider uh knowledge is 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 somewhat complete I haven't watched all those episodes of uh Deep Sea Seven oh, or whatever. quest yeah, <laughs> Quest. Sea Quest. Sea Quest. Which I yeah. only
0: know because there was a comic based on it and I wrote about it. Yeah, 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 set. yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: We talked a lot more about all that jazz and singing in the rain, but I think in, it, the only reason is that there's just, Singing in the Rain is just a perfect gem of a movie. And I l- deliberately use the word perfect. There's a mm-hmm. perfect gem of a movie. Yeah. It yeah. is a, an effort, absolutely effortless watch.
1: Yes. Yep. And and something that's not—it's light, but it's fulfilling. It, it's it's only light in its storytelling. It's not light. It's 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 a it's a ten-course meal. Whether
0: whether you're going through a deep depression or you're on top of the world, it's a movie that's just gonna just make you feel good. Right. It's right. it's an hour and a half of just pure joy. All that jazz is beautiful. In its own way it's just so much more challenging but bo- bo- the thing that both movies share well there's many things that both movies share they're both pure cinematic
1: mm-hmm. yeah it can't be anything else right you can't, you, at can't all. you can't write the book of singing in the rain the only way it exists is visually as a movie as a as a piece of art as a piece of film and the same thing with uh, all that jazz the book would not, you know, the story written on the page would not give you what, you know, the movie gives you. So yeah, in that case, absolutely. Two pieces of pure cinema and two pieces of perfection.
0: Thanks, Keith. I'm glad we talked about these.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Jason. Thank you very much.